from the ground up is a great way to think about building a business, growing step-by-step -step in the journey from idea to viable, successful enterprise. And today we'll look at two growing businesses that started at the bottom or right at our feet. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Daniel Bage. Coming up, we'll head down to New Zealand to meet the commercial helicopter pilot who created the True Honey Company, a high-end Manuka honey brand he's taken right around the world. The Manuka bush was for long considered more of a weed, but its flowers produce an incredible honey that's inspired many in New Zealand to look back to the earth in some very remote spots. That conversation coming up. But first, we're off to Stockholm to meet two of the co-founders of Nordic Knots. They're makers of fine rugs, which they say should be the basis for building your home around. Start with a beautiful piece for the floor and build from there. The company was founded in 2016 by Fabian and Felix Berglund and Lisa Lazaro, Fabian's wife. Lisa started her career in law, but later moved into interior design. And as you'll hear, has been interested in fine antiques her entire life. Fabian is a designer where Felix has expertise in finance and supervises production, which is done in northern India. The color palette and patterns of their rugs are inspired by natural light in the Nordics and classic Scandinavian design. First up today, my conversation with Lisa and Fabian on their company, Nordic Knots. We're rug dealers, that's really what we are, but with Nordic Knots, we wanted to disrupt an old and pretty traditional category when it comes to interior design. We feel like, you know, buying rugs today or when we started out was too complicated. There were too many choices and we wanted to offer something that had good design and good quality, but also pretty good price and make those kind of rugs accessible. It's not like there's a shortage of rugs out there. There's lots of really high ends, like super expensive. You can buy a rug for a, a million euros, right? So <laughs> there's tons of rugs that are like really high end. And then there's obviously so much stuff from the sort of big chains, bad quality stuff that is really uninspiring. And we felt that there's nothing right there in the middle for people like us that want something that is beautiful, made to last, and sort of inspiring. There's nothing really in the rug category we felt that was made the same way that a fashion brand might inspire you. Yeah, very interesting. And even in a very busy field or busy ecosystem, as you point out there, I still feel with these types of brands, there is a lot of space to do things much better. And I think we can come on to how you are doing that and, and sort of your mission there. But Lisa, perhaps we could just walk back just a little bit and, and talk about how this all came together. What do you collectively bring to this company and how did the conversation start about doing something different, as we've said? We started with a pretty functional idea, you know, when you want to create something, a product. But along the way, we have really become appreciated for our design, the aesthetic that we create in the world where we place the rug. So it's not only creating the product or making or designing the actual product, it's more about the world that we place the rug in. And that is something that we just realized that that's something that we're really good at. Fabian, you talked about creating a well-made product at a very good price point and well thought of, well considered, well designed, all of these things. Where is the starting point for you then on how you begin to create that? Does it begin with the design? Does it begin with finding the best production partners? Talk to me about that journey and how that started for you. 
the first collection we did, we got inspired by Stockholm. I'm from Stockholm. I lived here most of my early life. And then both of us lived abroad for a long time. That's also where we met. And then coming back to Stockholm, you know, visiting, all of a sudden it felt quite sort of exotic. And we were inspired by the colors here, you know, really. It was all about the colors when we started, the colors of the facades, the colors of the landscapes. And we thought, why don't we make a small collection of rugs, simple design, nothing that is too out there, but something that kind of works for a lot of people. By not having too much, maybe we can make it in a way that's also fairly competitive. There was also a big trend in the direct-to-consumer idea, which is obviously cutting out a lot of costs by not having showrooms, not having middlemen. So we were sort of seeing that trend and felt that we could do something in that space with rugs. We make them in India. That's really where most of the rugs are made. There's, of course, a lot of places in the world, but there's a lot of great rugs made in India. And we just looked at the types of rugs we were making, and then there was a lot of back and forth, finding a type of rug that doesn't get too expensive, I guess. A design that you can do that doesn't get too complicated, that doesn't take too long to weave, things like that. And then, of course, what goes into the rug ultimately determines the price as well. You know, the kind of wool you use, things like that. So it's been a lot of experimenting, to be honest, to get to where we are today and uh, figuring out what the best product is that we can make. Lisa, talk to me a little bit about the design aesthetic and what you've gone for, where you started. Obviously, you had worked in the interior design space before and now are working on one specific element. You'll have an idea of what you want to see as the end product that you go on to use to create your brand, to sell to consumers. What was the aim there? And talk to us a little bit about the design. The end product we want to create is something that will age beautifully but really is the foundation of how you build a beautiful home. I mean, I come from the antiques world, or world of antiques, rather, where I grew up. I did my first antique show when I was two years old. So I grew up among things that carried a really high quality, but also a beautiful scale and proportion because I think that's really what stands out when it comes to antiques compared to newly produced pieces. So the rugs that we create, we want them to kind of, you know, be not a newly made version of antiques, but something that will last a long time once you buy it and also work with a lot of homes. That doesn't take over. Instead, it's adding and creating the base of the home that you want to live in. That's a great way of putting it. Fabian, you talked about the idea of very much working within a, a modern consumer ecosystem, we can say, direct to consumer. You didn't want to go for the showroom right away. How do you talk to consumers, show the brand off in a way that matches what people are interested in these days. Obviously, that, that often leads back to sustainability, that things are ethically made. Talk to me a little bit about the brand development in that sense and, and how that matched with the design that you went ahead with. I mean, I think Lisa touched on it a little bit. It's about creating this world, right? I don't think a lot of people wake up in the morning and, and say, I'm really into rugs. I want to go and browse rugs online. You know what I mean? I think it's not the kind of product maybe that is top of mind. So for us, the rug is sort of the foundation and on the rug you build your personal expression, you create your beautiful home. And, and we felt early on that we can show people beautifully curated spaces and homes. And, and I think that's been part of how we have become relevant, even though it's rugs and not 
fashion or maybe a sofa that maybe people care more about. I don't know. It's just more obvious yeah. when you see a sofa in a picture. Like, you search for it in a different way. The rug is sort of secondary to a lot of people. <laughs> then we were like, we don't have to fight that. Let's, let's work with that as an advantage, you know. Let's make it a foundation, like Lisa said. I think on the other point around sustainability and how it's made, I think we believe that we always say we want to make a good rug that is good for us and good for the people that make it. You know, it needs to be both. But we've never made a decision to make anything around how it's produced when it comes to ethical practices or sustainability. We don't want that to be part of the marketing. We, we see a lot of brands that run with that as their idea. We believe that everyone should do it as good as they can. In five years time, hopefully every brand is doing that, right? We don't think that that should be your selling point. It should be something that every brand is doing. And we're obviously like everyone else learning. I think what we think is the right thing to do Today, we will learn even more in five years and do it even better. So it's never finished that part. So it's super important. And we work really hard at that side. We work with a company called Goodweave, for example, to make sure that the weavers get fair wages and, and the conditions are right and things like that. But it's not the thing we want to want to headline our brand around. You know? Sustainability is kind of like playing golf. Like you're never... Never good enough. You know, you can always get better. You don't always. like golf. I don't even like golf, but I like sustainability. <laughs> I appreciate uh, your take on that as the entire thing is a journey as you continue to, to grow and, and totally understand. Uh, Lisa, I wonder if I could ask you, if we build on this idea as the rug as sort of a foundation to build upon in your interior design and creating your space, talk to me a little bit more about the design then. If we're going for longevity, something that is really well made, very functional, perhaps a bit minimal. How do you pick out a design? How do you suggest people look at buying a rug then as that sort of foundation if they're going to build up from there? We have such a strong design identity, I think, coming from Sweden. We both lived abroad. I lived in New York for 11 years, Fabian eight years before that in London, and we lived in Amsterdam. Like I said, I grew up with Swedish antiques and Swedish antiques is what I know really, really well. Swedish design or Scandinavian design, it's extremely restrained. When you live in it, maybe you don't always think about it, but living abroad, all of a sudden you get a perspective because you're distant from the design in a way, if you know what, if you understand what I mean. So when we are designing, it's pretty minimalistic in a way, but you know, we try to think outside of the Scandinavian design box, but when we design, it's with that knowledge in hand. And I think building a foundation on that, it's easier than building a foundation on a super busy, super colorful, multicolored rug. I would also add, like, the hard thing is, like, not to design. I mean, it's easy to make lots of different rug designs. You know, it's almost like a two-dimensional piece of paper. You know, you could draw so many patterns and so many ideas out fairly quickly. The real struggle is deciding on what to actually make and make sure that the ones we do go with, you know, are ones that we feel can be part of our collection for a long time because we never want it to be sort of a trend company, you know? We don't want to be too much into what's the 
seasonal trend? What's the latest idea in interior design? No, I mean, the goal is really to, the, the rug we design today is going to be as appreciated in 10 years time, hopefully. I mean, then you've actually achieved something as a designer, I think. If you look at it, what we create in our collection, there is something that I think will be as beautiful or even more beautiful within 10 years time. But then we also have these interesting capsule collection or collaborations or where we really challenging ourselves when it comes to the creative process and the end product. Fabian, just coming back to you, I would love to hear about uh, perhaps uh, what is the other corner of the triangle of the leadership of this brand, and that is your brother, I believe. Talk to me about how that works between you three and his role as well. Yeah, no, it's great to work with the family. <laughs> <laughs> the idea was sort of was sort of born when he was visiting us in, in New York, actually, and we were thinking it'd be great to do something together, partly because we think we're all, I mean, we respect each other and we think we can build something good, but also to have more opportunity to see each other, I guess. And now we see each other all the time. Every day. <laughs> but no, his background is in um, e-commerce. He was actually a poker player for many, many years before that. So he's... Extremely good with numbers. He's, he's, the, he's the brain, I guess. We do other things. <laughs> we do a lot of the decision-making together. I think the three of us have different backgrounds and We bring really something, things, yes, yeah. something different to the table. I mean, he has... He is a really skilled entrepreneur, Fabian, with advertising and marketing background and me coming from design and antiques, knowing picky clients, selling high end products too. So it's a pretty solid base when you're going to build something like a rug brand. And I guess the benefit when you're family, it can, I think, be a challenge to a family business as well, but you can sort of argue about anything, I guess. You're still family, so it doesn't matter if you don't agree you on something. You can't get you, rid of you know, each other. <laughs> you know, you, you, yeah, you're not going to get rid of each other because you disagree. <laughs> it's a good way to actually push each other and, and push the business forward. And Lisa, just adding on that, talk to me a little bit about how rewarding it has been for everyone, perhaps, or how challenging, conversely, it has been to bring this collective experience and wealth of knowledge together into a brand that is the brainchild of all of you, all of you and, and sort of what does that mean for you and how uh, interesting has it been to grow this brand? Oh, it's been extremely interesting and so rewarding. We started out, this was a side business. I was working full force with the antiques company and my interior design projects and Fabian was head creative and Felix had, I think, two or three businesses to take care of. And little by little, day by day and year by year, this has become what we do full time. And seeing it grow and seeing, I mean, I'm so happy every time we sell a rug. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, it's just such an amazing feeling to every time we get the samples from the drawing board, the idea of what's the muse home and what are the colors that we're going to use for this collection. The sample comes in and opening up the packages and then choosing what we're going to actually produce and then photographing it and finding these amazing spaces or homes and styling the shoot, it's still, it's such a great feeling. And then on top of it, people like what you do. It couldn't be better. 
I have to say. Like now when I'm talking about it, I'm like, it's a big smile on my face. So I hope that the journey will just continue. Of course, as there has been challenges. Sometimes a little stressful too. <laughs> sometimes, obviously it's stressful. I mean, we put everything into this business. And for me and Fabian, we're married, so this is our life, and this is what we're hoping to be able to do as long as we can. Lastly, Lisa, why don't you just tell us what's in the works and how you see this as sort of a vehicle to get into other things, or what's on your plate these days other than taking care of a nine-month-old? <laughs> other than that, we are building the world of Scandinavian design around our product. We might be expanding to other products, except from rugs to really be able to give our clients and our followers the full experience on how to create the image that we have been creating for our rugs. Very, very well said to you both. Thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing the story. Thank you, Thank you for so having much. us. Lisa Lazaro and Fabian Berglund, two of the co-founders of Nordic Knots, speaking to me from Stockholm. You can learn more and see their collection at nordicknots.com. Next up, we're off to New Zealand. Jim McMillan is the founder of The True Honey Co., a company he was inspired to launch in 2013 after seeing endless hills of Manuka flowers in remote parts of the country's North Island. Jim has been a helicopter pilot in the agriculture sector and has built upon existing relationships with landowners for honey production. Jim is passionate about conservation and looking after New Zealand's unique natural environment and has created a brand that is a celebration of quality and responsible production. The brand's range of honeys come in glass jars inside a unique folded cardboard box, which was created to ensure no extra packaging or bubble wrap is needed to ship right around the world. While Maori people have for long used part of the Manuka bush for medicinal purposes, the honey's incredible antibacterial healing properties were not widely known until just a few decades ago. Here's Jim now with the story of the true honeyco. I come from background in aviation, or, or more specifically helicopters. I uh, worked for many years in the service providing industry for the agricultural sector in New Zealand. I guess I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time flying up and down the length and breadth of our country and sort of spotted or identified some significant stands of very pure manuka growing in some very remote locations. I guess really come up with the idea of wanting to be able to produce some of the world's purest manuka honey from some of these really remote, beautiful locations really. The only way we could access them was through the use of helicopters to penetrate into some of these very, very remote areas with no, I guess, road or vehicle access of any kind whatsoever. And what did it take to get that up and running? Obviously, this is a very remote part of the country. I can only imagine there are some protections involved. But talk to me just about how you got that operation off the ground, because uh, as you say, it's, it, it is quite far to reach your production area. I come from a background in aviation, so I was pretty familiar with that. Also had extensive relationships with landowners, I guess throughout the North Island anyway, and really set about identifying the owners of these properties. I could clearly see, I guess, from the sky. A lot of these stands of manuka weren't being utilised for manuka honey production. So you found out who the owners were, approached them and put the proposition to them around would they be interested in 
you know, looking to gain some utilisation from their resource and generally that was viewed very favourably. Look to really set up and put in place yes, mutually beneficial partnerships with those landowners, good fair terms really where uh, I guess it was a win-win for both parties. What was once considered potentially a liability being the Manuka bush, they could see an opportunity to potentially generate income and revenue I guess from that resource and also loved the idea of being part of the story of producing honey from these beautiful areas and taking it to the globe really so that's really how it come about and as simple as that. You've gone, obviously, quite literally above and beyond to far reaches of the country to find space for production. Just talk to us about where the industry is at and why there is perhaps need for that. Is it because there's not enough land and not enough landowners that want to have their space used for Manuka production? Just talk to me about where we're at now in terms of what uh, the industry can be for New Zealand and where it's at. Not that long ago, Manuka honey was actually considered almost like a weed, certainly in my career as a helicopter pilot. I spent quite a large amount of time actually cutting, spraying. It was considered a weed, I guess, and it was cleared accordingly. As the Manuka honey industry has evolved over time, it's viewed quite differently because it's generating those landowners an income stream and now a viable part of their farming operation. There's been certainly significant growth in the industry from a production standpoint, and that has certainly tied up a lot of resource. But right from the very beginning of True Honey, I guess really built the business on the production of some of the purest Manuka honey in the world from some of the most remote locations. So that's an area that we've focused very hard and haven't really deviated from that. So because of my background in aviation experience with helicopters, it's positioned us very well to just really capitalise on that sector and working very hard to continue to create our premium slash luxury brand and we wanted to be able to provide honey lovers around the world with the opportunity if they're buying a very premium luxury end product to have the confidence that it's come from some of the cleanest, greenest locations around New Zealand and you know, certainly free from any potential pesticide or other residues. You mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that you are creating some of the most pure products. This is very unique, very special process as well. For our audience, just explain a little bit about how you grade the quality of the honey and what it is you're actually, what you're actually selling across the range. Manuka honey originally hit the world stage as a very popular honey. It was really due to the fact that a gentleman by the name of Professor Peter Molan discovered that Manuka honey had properties within it that no other honey had, which essentially gave it some non-peroxide antibacterial properties. He was conducting a number of trials and tests using Manuka honey on wound care for healing antibiotic-resistant severe wounds and ulcers, and they found that Manuka honey outperformed all other honeys by a great extent. So they dug a bit further and, and identified that Manuka honey contained up to a hundred times higher levels of a compound called methyldloxal or NGO for short than any other one of these honeys. So when I talk about purity of the Manuka nectar are present in that honey and as importantly I guess the concentration of methyldloxal or NGO present in that honey as well. 
Talk to me about just the sales abroad. Obviously, that will be a big part of the market. And your partners will play a role in sort of selling the story of the brand and helping not only the company, but New Zealand sort of rebuild that reputation or continue to build the reputation of what Manuka honey can be. As you said, not so long ago, people didn't really know what this was, but now it's become quite a delicacy, we can say, and it is a very high-end product. So talk to me just about who you've worked with and what that journey looks like in, in continuing to try to grow your market, we can say, abroad. One of the biggest steps forward was the introduction by New Zealand's MPI, or Ministry of Primary Industries, around the development of a definition for Manuka honey. So I guess now that that's in place, I guess anybody that's purchasing Manuka honey that's been packaged in New Zealand can feel 100% confident that it is Manuka honey as per the MPI definition. We're selling into numerous different markets around the globe. The first international market we launched into was actually the UK, which was back in 2016. We launched our brand, had a launch event at Peter Gordon's restaurant, Providores. At that time, our intent was pretty well to try to go exclusively online, but we didn't actually get the volume of sales that we're looking for. But what we did get as part of that campaign was a lot of interest around different retailers wanting to stock our product in not just the UK, but a number of surrounding countries as well. So off the back of that, we realised quite quickly that we needed to maybe pivot our strategy a little bit and not just be solely focused on online and maybe a tandem strategy of working with high-end retail and uh, online at the same time, the likes of Harrods and Selfridges in the UK approach us and that's actually led into now sell significant volumes into the wider GCC region, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE to name a few. Also selling honey into numerous parts of Europe, not far off launching into the China market, currently selling into Singapore and Japan. Very good and quite interesting. Jim, Obviously, this has been quite the growth for you in the past number of years, as explained from, you know, first flying over these different properties and and discovering the potential for this market. Just talk to me about how interesting that has been for you and how exciting you are to continue to grow this company, which is quite the mark of quality for New Zealand. Uh, It's a time when a lot of people are thinking about top level quality products like this. They're thinking about sustainability. We've touched on your packaging and what that can do. Talk to me about what you've got going on, how you plan to grow, and and how exciting it's been for you. It really started off as a production business, so specialising in the production of a very pure or high-grade manuka from remote locations, and even that in its own self, I guess, felt very privileged to be able to produce a gift from nature from some of the most beautiful parts around our country. I guess it was a real privilege, and some of the, the, the true partnerships and relationships or win-win relationships we've sort of created as part of that that's been very rewarding also so a lot of remote stands of manuka once considered a wasteland now generating income and revenue stream it's having a positive impact on some of the surrounding remote communities as well as the business has grown entering into the export market certainly been a, a big eye-opener i guess to understand and conceive just the extent of the size of the globe and the opportunity. For example, our first biggest markets um, probably selling into in significant volumes of honey 
Saudi Arabia, which was a country I'd never even considered exporting a honey to. It just sort of come about by chance, really. Where we're heading to moving forward, we've got a very, very dedicated, passionate team. We're all pretty motivated about what the future might hold. We're very focused on carving out a bit of a new segment for Manuka honey, like right in that very luxury end space have the opportunity to take a gift from nature or a primary product from New Zealand and to look after it with such care all along the journey and produce the highest quality product possible for that luxury end market I guess in itself I feel very privileged to be able to do that been very exciting journey but I'm sure we've still got you know a long way to go yet but we're very committed to continuing to innovate to ensure we can keep pushing the boundaries of what can be achieved into the future, Daniel. Very well said, Jim. And uh, it's a fascinating story. I think I'm going to have to make my way over to Selfridges later to try to get my hands on some of this honey. It sounds absolutely beautiful. So thanks for your time, Jim. We, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Jim McMillan, founder of The True Honey Co. You can learn more about the brand at truehoneyco.co.uk. That's all for this week's program. My thanks to Jack Jewers, who mixed and edited this show. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.